Chapter Eleven, Part Four of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Eleven, Part Four. They went towards the stackyard. There he saw, with something like terror, the great new stacks of corn. Glistening and gleaming, transfigured, silvery and present under the night blue sky, throwing dark substantial shadows, but themselves majestic and dimly present. She, like glimmering gossamers, seemed to burn among them as they rose like cold fires to the silvery bluish air. All was intangible, a burning of cold, glimmering, whitish, steely fires. He was afraid of the great moon conflagration of the cornstacks rising above him. His heart grew smaller; it began to fuse like a bead. He knew he would die. She stood for some moments out in the overwhelming luminosity of the moon. She seemed a beam of gleaming power. She was afraid of what she was. Looking at him, at his shadowy, unreal, wavering presence, a sudden lust seized her. To lay hold of him and tear him and make him into nothing, her hands and wrists felt immeasurably hard and strong like blades. He waited there beside her like a shadow which she wanted to dissipate, destroy as the moonlight destroys a darkness, annihilate, have done with. She looked at him and her face gleamed bright and inspired. She tempted him, and an obstinacy in him made him put his arm round her and draw her to the shadow. She submitted. Let him try what he could do. Let him try what he could do. He leaned against the side of the stack, holding her. The stack stung him keenly with a thousand cold, sharp flames. Still, obstinately, he held her. And timorously, his hands went over her, over the salt, compact brilliance of her body. If he could but have her, how he would enjoy her! If he could but net her brilliant, cold, salt-burning body in the soft iron of his own hands, net her, capture her, hold her down, how madly he would enjoy her! He strove subtly, but with all his energy, to enclose her, to have her, and always she was burning and brilliant and hard as salt and deadly. Yet obstinately, all his flesh burning and corroding as if he were invaded by some consuming, scathing poison. Still he persisted, thinking at last he might overcome her. Even in his frenzy, he sought for her mouth with his mouth, though it was like putting his face into some awful death. She yielded to him, and he pressed himself upon her in extremity, his soul groaning over and over. Let me come! Let me come! She took him in the kiss. Hard her kiss seized upon him, hard and fierce and burning, corrosive as the moonlight. She seemed to be destroying him. He was reeling, summoning all his strength to keep his kiss upon her, to keep himself in the kiss. But hard and fierce she had fastened upon him, cold as the moon and burning as a fierce salt, till gradually his warm, soft iron yielded. Yielded, and she was there, fierce, corrosive, seething with his destruction, seething like some cruel, corrosive salt around the last substance of his being, destroying him, destroying him in the kiss, and her soul crystallized with triumph, 
and his soul was dissolved with agony and annihilation. So she held him there, the victim, consumed, annihilated. She had triumphed. He was not any more. Gradually she began to come to herself. Gradually a sort of daytime consciousness came back to her. Suddenly the night was struck back into its old accustomed mild reality. Gradually she realized that the night was common and ordinary, that the great blistering transcendent night did not really exist. She was overcome with slow horror. Where was she? What was this nothingness she felt? The nothingness was Skrebensky. Was he really there? Who was he? He was silent. He was not there. What had happened? Had she been mad? What horrible thing had possessed her? She was filled with overpowering fear of herself, overpowering desire that it should not be, that other burning corrosive self. She was seized with a frenzied desire that what had been should never be remembered, never be thought of, never be for one moment allowed possible. She denied it with all her might. With all her might she turned away from it. She was good. She was loving. Her heart was warm. Her blood was dark and warm and soft. She laid her hand caressively on Anton's shoulder. "'Isn't it lovely?' she said softly, coaxingly, caressingly. And she began to caress him to life again, for he was dead, and she had intended that he should never know, never become aware of what had been. She would bring him back from the dead without leaving him one trace of fact to remember his annihilation by. She exerted all her ordinary warm self. She touched him. She did him homage of loving awareness, and gradually he came back to her, another man. She was soft and winning and caressing. She was his servant, his adoring slave, and she restored the whole shell of him. She restored the whole form and figure of him. But the core was gone. His pride was bolstered up. His blood ran once more in pride, but there was no core to him. As a distinct male he had no core. His triumphant, flaming, overweening heart of the intrinsic male would never beat again. He would be subject now, reciprocal, never the indomitable thing with a core of overweening, unabatable fire. She had abated that fire. She had broken him. But she caressed him. She would not have him remember what had been. She would not remember herself. "'Kiss me, Anton, kiss me,' she pleaded. He kissed her, but she knew he could not touch her. His arms were round her, but they had not got her. She could feel his mouth upon her, but she was not at all compelled by it. "'Kiss me,' she whispered in acute distress. "'Kiss me!' And he kissed her as she bade him, but his heart was hollow. She took his kisses outwardly, but her soul was empty and finished. Looking away, she saw the delicate glint of oats dangling from the side of the stack in the moonlight, something proud and royal and quite impersonal. She had been proud with them, where they were. She had been also. But in this temporary warm world of the commonplace, she was a kind, good girl. She reached out yearningly for goodness and affection. She wanted to be kind and good. They went home through the night that was all pale and glowing around, with shadows and glimmerings and presences. Distinctly she saw the flowers in the hedge-bottoms. She saw the thin raked sheaves flung white upon the thorny hedge. How beautiful! How beautiful it was! She thought with anguish how wildly happy she was to-night, since he had kissed her. But as he walked with his arm round her waist, 
She turned with a great offering of herself to the night that glistened tremendous, a magnificent godly moon, white and candid as a bridegroom, flowers silvery and transformed filling up the shadows. He kissed her again under the yew-trees at home, and she left him. She ran from the intrusion of her parents at home to her bedroom, where, looking out on the moonlit country, she stretched up her arms, hard, hard, in bliss, agony, offering herself to the blonde, debonair presence of the night. But there was a wound of sorrow. She had hurt herself, as if she had bruised herself in annihilating him. She covered up her two young breasts with her hands, covering them to herself, and covering herself with herself. She crouched in bed to sleep. In the morning the sun shone. She got up strong and dancing. Skrebensky was still at the marsh. He was coming to church. How lovely, how amazing life was! On the fresh Sunday morning she went out to the garden among the yellows and the deep vibrating reds of autumn. She smelled the earth and felt the gossamer. The cornfields across the country were pale and unreal. Everywhere was the intense silence of the Sunday morning, filled with unacquainted noises. She smelled the body of the earth. It seemed to stir its powerful flank beneath her as she stood. In the bluish air came the powerful exudation. The peace was the peace of strong, exhausted breathing. The reds and yellows and the white gleam of stubble were the quivers and motion of the last subsiding transports and clear bliss of fulfillment. The church bells were ringing when he came. She looked up in keen anticipation at his entry. But he was troubled, and his pride was hurt. He seemed very much clothed. She was conscious of his tailored suit. "'Wasn't it lovely last night?' she whispered to him. "'Yes,' he said. But his face did not open, nor become free. The service and the singing in church that morning passed unnoticed by her. She saw the colored glow of the windows, the forms of the worshippers. Only she glanced at the book of Genesis, which was her favorite book in the Bible. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes in the sea. Into your hand are they delivered." Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But Ursula was not moved by the history this morning. Multiplying and replenishing the earth bored her. Altogether it seemed merely a vulgar and stock-raising sort of business. She was left quite cold by man's stock-breeding lordship over beast and fishes. And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. In her soul she mocked at this multiplication, every cow becoming two cows, every turnip ten turnips. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that a bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Destroy all flesh? Why flesh in particular? Who was this lord of flesh? 
After all, how big was the flood? Perhaps a few dryads and fawns had just run into the hills and the farther valleys and woods, frightened, but most had gone on, blithely unaware of any flood at all, unless the nymphs should tell them. It pleased Ursula to think of the naiads in Asia Minor meeting the nereids at the mouth of the streams where the sea washed against the fresh sweet tide and calling to their sisters the news of Noah's flood. They would tell amusing accounts of Noah in his ark. Some nymphs would relate how they had hung on the side of the ark, peeped in, and heard Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth sitting in their place under the rain, saying how they four were the only men on earth now, because the Lord had drowned all the rest, so that they four would have everything to themselves and be masters of everything, sub-tenants under the great proprietor. Ursula wished she had been a nymph. She would have laughed through the window of the ark and flicked drops of the flood at Noah before she drifted away to people who were less important in their proprietor and their flood. What was God, after all? If maggots in a dead dog be but God kissing carrion, what then is not God? She was surfeited of this God. She was weary of the Ursula Brangwen who felt troubled about God. Whatever God was, he was, and there was no need for her to trouble about him. She felt she had now all license. Skrebensky sat beside her, listening to the sermon, to the voice of law and order. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. He did not believe it. He believed his own things were quite at his own disposal. You could do as you liked with your own things, so long as you left other people's alone. Ursula caressed him and made love to him. Nevertheless, he knew she wanted to react upon him and to destroy his being. She was not with him, she was against him, but her making love to him, her complete admiration of him, in open life, gratified him. She caught him out of himself, and they were lovers, in a young, romantic, almost fantastic way. He gave her a little ring. They put it in Rhine wine in their glass, and she drank, then he drank. They drank till the ring lay exposed at the bottom of the glass. Then she took the simple jewel and tied it on a thread round her neck where she wore it. He asked her for a photograph when he was going away. She went in great excitement to the photographer with five shillings. The result was an ugly little picture of herself with her mouth on one side. She wondered over it and admired it. He saw only the live face of the girl. The picture hurt him. He kept it. He always remembered it, but he could scarcely bear to see it. There was a hurt to his soul in the clear, fearless face that was touched with abstraction. Its abstraction was certainly away from him. Then war was declared with the Boers in South Africa, and everywhere was a fizz of excitement. He wrote that he might have to go, and he sent her a box of sweets. She was slightly dazed at the thought of his going to the war, not knowing how to feel. It was a sort of romantic situation that she knew so well in fiction, she hardly understood it in fact. Underneath a top elation was a sort of dreariness, deep ashy disappointment. However, she secreted the sweets under her bed and ate them all herself, when she went to bed and when she woke in the morning. All the time she felt very guilty and ashamed, but she simply did not want to share them. That box of sweets remained stuck in her mind afterwards. Why had she secreted them and eaten them every one? Why? She did not feel guilty. She only knew she ought to feel guilty, and she could not make up her mind. 
Curiously monumental that box of sweets stood up. Now it was empty. It was a crux for her. What was she to think of it? The idea of war altogether made her feel uneasy, uneasy. When men began organized fighting with each other, it seemed to her as if the poles of the universe were cracking, and the whole might go tumbling into the bottomless pit. A horrible bottomless feeling she had, yet, of course, there was the minted superscription of romance and honor and even religion about war. She was very confused. Skrebensky was busy. He could not come to see her. She asked for no assurance, no security. What was between them was, and could not be altered by avowals. She knew that by instinct. She trusted to the intrinsic reality. But she felt an agony of helplessness. She could do nothing. Vaguely she knew the huge powers of the world, rolling and crashing together, darkly, clumsily, stupidly, yet colossal, so that one was brushed along almost as dust, helpless, helpless, swirling like dust. Yet she wanted so hard to rebel, to rage, to fight. But with what? Could she with her hands fight the face of the earth, beat the hills in their places? Yet her breast wanted to fight, to fight the whole world, and these two small hands were all she had to do it with. The months went by, and it was Christmas. The snowdrops came. There was a little hollow in the wood near Cassette where snowdrops grew wild. She sent him some in a box, and he wrote her a quick little note of thanks. Very grateful and wistful, he seemed. Her eyes grew childlike and puzzled. Puzzled from day to day she went on, helpless, carried along by all that must happen. He went about at his duties, giving himself up to them. At the bottom of his heart, his self, the soul that aspired and had true hope of self-effectuation, lay as dead, stillborn, a dead weight in his womb. Who was he to hold important his personal connection? What did a man matter personally? He was just a brick in the whole great social fabric, the nation, the modern humanity. His personal movements were small and entirely subsidiary. The whole form must be insured, not ruptured, for any personal reason whatsoever, since no personal reason could justify such a breaking. What did personal intimacy matter? One had to fill one's place in the whole, the great scheme of man's elaborate civilization. That was all. The whole mattered, but the unit, the person, had no importance, except as he represented the whole. So Skrebensky left the girl out and went his way, serving what he had to serve and enduring what he had to endure without remark. To his own intrinsic life he was dead, and he could not rise again from the dead. His soul lay in the tomb. His life lay in the established order of things. He had his five senses, too. They were to be gratified. Apart from this, he represented the great established extant idea of life, and as this he was important and beyond question. The good of the greatest number was all that mattered. That which was the greatest good for them all, collectively, was the greatest good for the individual. And so every man must give himself to support the state, and so labor for the greatest good of all. One might make improvements in the state, perhaps, but always with a view to preserving it intact. No highest good of the community, however, would give him the vital fulfillment of his soul. He knew this. But he did not consider the soul of the individual sufficiently important. He believed a man was important in so far as he represented all humanity. 
He could not see, it was not born in him to see, that the highest good of the community, as it stands, is no longer the highest good of even the average individual. He thought that because the community represents millions of people, therefore it must be millions of times more important than any individual, forgetting that the community is an abstraction from the many, and is not the many themselves. Now when the statement of the abstract good for the community has become a formula, lacking in all inspiration or value to the average intelligence, then the common good becomes a general nuisance, representing the vulgar, conservative materialism at a low level. And by the highest good of the greatest number is chiefly meant the material prosperity of all classes. Skrebensky did not really care about his own material prosperity. If he had been penniless, well, he would have taken his chances. Therefore, how could he find his highest good in giving up his life for the material prosperity of everybody else? What he considered an unimportant thing for himself, he could not think worthy of every sacrifice on behalf of other people. And that which he would consider of the deepest importance to himself as an individual, oh, he said, you mustn't consider the community from that standpoint. No, no, we know what the community wants. It wants something solid. It wants good wages, equal opportunities, good conditions of living. That's what the community wants. It doesn't want anything subtle or difficult. Duty is very plain. Keep in mind the material, the immediate welfare of every man, that's all. So there came over Skrebensky a sort of nullity, which more and more terrified Ursula. She felt there was something hopeless which she had to submit to. She felt a great sense of disaster impending. Day after day was made inert with a sense of disaster. She became morbidly sensitive, depressed, apprehensive. It was anguish to her when she saw one rook slowly flapping in the sky. That was a sign of ill omen, and the foreboding became so black and so powerful in her that she was almost extinguished. Yet what was the matter? At the worst he was only going away. Why did she mind? What was it she feared? She did not know. Only she had a black dread possessing her. When she went at night and saw the big flashing stars, they seemed terrible. By day she was always expecting some charge to be made against her. He wrote in March to say that he was going to South Africa in a short time, but before he went he would snatch a day at the marsh. As if in a painful dream, she waited, suspended, unresolved. She did not know, she could not understand— only she felt that all the threads of her fate were being held taut in suspense. She only wept sometimes as she went about, saying blindly, I am so fond of him, I am so fond of him. He came, but why did he come? She looked at him for a sign. He gave no sign. He did not even kiss her. He behaved as if he were an affable, usual acquaintance. This was superficial, but what did it hide? She waited for him. She wanted him to make some sign. So the whole of the day they wavered and avoided contact until evening. Then, laughing, saying he would be back in six months' time and would tell them all about it, he shook hands with her mother and took his leave. Ursula accompanied him into the lane. The night was windy. The yew-trees seethed and hissed and vibrated. The wind seemed to rush about among the chimneys and the church tower. It was dark. The wind blew Ursula's face, and her clothes cleaved to her limbs. But it was a surging, turgid wind, instinct with compressed vigor of life, 
and she seemed to have lost Skrebensky. Out there in the strong, urgent night she could not find him. "'Where are you?' she asked. "'Here,' came his bodiless voice, and groping she touched him. A fire like lightning drenched them. "'Anton?' she said. "'What?' he answered. She held him with her hands in the darkness. She felt his body again with hers. "'Don't leave me. Come back to me,' she said. "'Yes,' he said, holding her in his arms. But the male in him was scotched by the knowledge that she was not under his spell nor his influence. He wanted to go away from her. He rested in the knowledge that to-morrow he was going away. His life was really elsewhere.' His life was elsewhere, his life was elsewhere. The center of his life was not what she would have. She was different. There was a breach between them. There were hostile worlds. "'You will come back to me?' she reiterated. "'Yes,' he said, and he meant it. But as one keeps an appointment, not as a man returning to his fulfillment. So she kissed him and went indoors, lost. He walked down to the marsh, abstracted. The contact with her hurt him, and threatened him. He shrank. He had to be free of her spirit, for she would stand before him like the angel before Balaam, and drive him back with a sword from the way he was going into a wilderness. The next day she went to the station to see him go. She looked at him. She turned to him, but he was always so strange and null, so null. He was so collected. She thought it was that which made him null. Strangely, nothing he was. Ursula stood near him with a mute, pale face, which he would rather not see. There seemed some shame at the very root of life, cold, dead shame for her. The three made a noticeable group on the station. The girl, in her fur cap and tippet, and her olive-green costume, pale, tense with youth, isolated, unyielding. The soldierly young man, in a crush hat and a heavy overcoat, his face rather pale and reserved above his purple scarf, his whole figure neutral. Then the elder man, a fashionable bowler hat pressed low over his dark brows, his face warm-colored and calm, his whole figure curiously suggestive of full-blooded indifference. He was the eternal audience, the chorus, the spectator at the drama. In his own life he would have no drama. The train was rushing up. Ursula's heart heaved, but the ice was frozen too strong upon it. "'Good-bye,' she said, lifting her hand, her face laughing with her peculiar, blind, almost dazzling laugh. She wondered what he was doing when he stooped and kissed her. He should be shaking hands and going. "'Good-bye,' she said again. He picked up his little bag and turned his back on her. There was a hurry along the train. Ah, here was his carriage. He took his seat.' Tom Brangwen shut the door, and the two men shook hands as the whistle went. "'Good-bye and good luck,' said Brangwen. "'Thank you. Good-bye.' The train moved off. Skrebensky stood at the carriage window, waving, but not really looking to the two figures, the girl and the warm-coloured, almost effeminately dressed man. Ursula waved her handkerchief. The train gathered speed. It grew smaller and smaller. Still it ran in a straight line. The speck of white vanished. The rear of the train was small in the distance. Still she stood on the platform, feeling a great emptiness about her. In spite of herself, her mouth was quivering. She did not want to cry. Her heart was dead cold. Her Uncle Tom had gone to an automatic machine and was getting matches. 
"'Would you like some sweets?' he said, turning round. Her face was covered with tears. She made curious downward grimaces with her mouth to get control, yet her heart was not crying. It was cold and earthy. "'What kind would you like, any?' persisted her uncle. "'I should love some peppermint drops,' she said, in a strange normal voice from her distorted face. But in a few moments she had gained control of herself and was still, detached. "'Let us go into the town,' he said and he rushed her into a train moving to the town station. They went to a café to drink coffee. She sat looking at people in the street, and a great wound was in her breast, a cold imperturbability in her soul. This cold imperturbability of spirit continued in her now. It was as if some disillusion had frozen upon her, a hard disbelief. Part of her had gone cold, apathetic. She was too young— too baffled to understand, or even to know that she suffered much, and she was too deeply hurt to submit. She had her blind agonies when she wanted him, she wanted him, but from the moment of his departure he had become a visionary thing of her own. All her roused torment and passion and yearning she turned to him. She kept a diary in which she wrote impulsive thoughts, Seeing the moon in the sky, her own heart surcharged, she went and wrote, If I were the moon, I know where I would fall down. It meant so much to her, that sentence. She put into it all the anguish of her youth and her young passion and yearning. She called to him from her heart wherever she went. Her limbs vibrated with anguish towards him wherever she was. The radiating force of her soul seemed to travel to him endlessly, endlessly and in her soul's own creation, find him. But who was he, and where did he exist? In her own desire only. She received a postcard from him, and she put it in her bosom. It did not mean much to her, really. The second day she lost it, and never even remembered she had had it, till some days afterwards. The long weeks went by. There came the constant bad news of the war, and she felt as if all outside there in the world were a hurt, a hurt against her, and something in her soul remained cold, apathetic, unchanging. Her life was always only partial at this time. Never did she live completely. There was the cold, unliving part of her, yet she was madly sensitive. She could not bear herself. When a dirty, red-eyed old woman came begging of her in the street, she started away as from an unclean thing, and then, when the old woman shouted acrid insults after her, she winced. Her limbs palpitated with insane torment. She could not bear herself. Whenever she thought of the red-eyed old woman, a sort of madness ran in inflammation over her flesh and her brain. She almost wanted to kill herself. And in this state her sexual life flamed into a kind of disease within her. She was so overwrought and sensitive that the mere touch of coarse wool seemed to tear her nerves. End of chapter 11